Jake presents. Today's guest is Mr. Hassan Saeed. He is working in post-production on his feature film, This Is Your Song, which I was fortunate enough to play a part in. Uh, we talked a lot about the state of cinema and just movies in general, and he's just a real treat to talk to, and I hope you enjoy it. So, I present to you, Mr. Hassan Saeed. Uh, so... Yeah, thanks for starting this off. I'm about to start back up on a season two, and so you're my first person for this season. Awesome. I, it, yeah, 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 Ooh. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, me too, me too. Oh man, you know, like doing a podcast is, oh. especially when you're, you know, kind of. Well, for right now, I'm doing it by myself. So you know, just when you try and figure out, figure out. Okay, well where's a good stopping point because as far as like ending a season so you can so you can rest a little bit so you can kind of yeah. figure out what you're going to do for the next season and stuff like that mm-hmm. and then the hardest part is just starting again <laughs> you yeah, know makes sense. You're like yeah. making a film you know once you're done you're like oh i want to start again but then it's like oh i have to start again and do this all over again exactly yeah exactly and and that's the trick, right? That is the trick for sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, the thing is, I, I remember like a while ago when we when we did uh, the "This Is Your Song" podcast with uh, "Making Movies Is Hard." We were yeah. having this debate. It was it was a makings of a small debate. I think it was like was it like film versus movies or was yeah. it like film versus digital or something like that. It <laughs> always it really, really, really jumped out at me, you know, yeah. because, you know, just because, you know, being a kid of the eighties, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm into all the movies, right. You know, like Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, you know, yes. Ghostbusters and, and all <laughs> that stuff. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Love Raiders of the Lost Ark. Big fan. Yeah. 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 But it's it was it's so interesting, especially with what uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, his statement as far as like movies being theme park rides, and I was like, ah, uh, yeah, you're right, absolutely, one hundred and ten percent, he's correct. Even though it depressed some people to read that and hear him say that, especially like independent filmmakers. But the truth of the matter is, like the 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 medium and the spectrum and the definition of it has completely shifted drastically in the past 10, 15 years or so. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, what's moving you these days? You know, like you know, you finished with uh, with your first feature film, and we'll get into that. But you know, what have you been doing lately? I mean, I'm trying to, as much as possible, in the best sane way possible, finish the post production end of the film, which lent itself to be quite a challenge, given the one take element in the film of the 97 minutes where the workflow wise is very different than any film I've done before because all departments have to team up and talk and communicate constantly together, whether it be sound, right. visual effects or visual effects with color. Um, so it lent itself to a very unique and sort of a first time type workflow for everybody involved. Um, and also, like, for example, when doing sound for a long take, you're trying to keep everything as consistent as possible from room tones to clothes rustling to uh, 
car driving outside, uh, rain, rain coming in, rain coming out. So it's, 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 it's definitely a, a full-time task because, you know, I'm, I'm micromanaging like five different departments and mm -hmm. there's a lot of trial and error. But meanwhile, I'm trying to write. I mean, I've, I've wrote about five features and two of them I'm polishing up, but there's a new script that's been haunting me lately that I'm um, diving into writing like outlines, beat sheets, character bios for at the moment before figuring out the whole stem of the story. So right. to, in order for myself to keep busy when I step away from This Is Your Song is primarily to write, just to have another sort of like push for like, okay, this is something that I want to make. It's something new. I'm not just stuck with one project um, just to keep the juices flowing, you know? Mm -hmm. And how, how do you, how do you start? How do you know you're going to start writing a script again? How, what's, what's, what is your process? If I can be so cliche. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my process is, is somewhat orthodox, but mostly unorthodox. Uh, okay. I like to focus primarily on a beginning and an end. And, and usually I write out the beginning very vividly, like scene description, even almost to the editing point. Mm -hmm. And from there, once I have the beginning, I start working on the character. I don't start working on the character until I have the beginning and an end, because otherwise I feel it's not worth it to dive into character arcs and conflicts if I don't really see or feel a beginning and an end to a film. And from that, I start kind of writing vignettes of who this person is, what, what does he or she want, what are they going through, the type of other people in their life, and start building that world. And from that, I jump into like a more orthodox sort of character bios, uh, beat sheet, uh, start outlining the script into like 40 to 50 scenes, Mm -hmm. And then jumping into screenplay mode and usually first draft is just like outpouring, outpouring, outpouring. And then I go back and refer to the outline and character bios and start finessing from there. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. So, so, so if, if I can, if I can uh, throw back what you're saying here. So basically yeah. you're not really sitting down trying to write the script per se, right. When you think about it, you're actually giving giving these uh these characters a moment to to be you know who yes. they are mm -hmm. and yeah and then and then once you figure that out then you kind of know what what their timeline is exactly and then that's, yeah yeah that, exactly. that totally works i out. think that works better for me because i mean so i've wrote i've written scripts just from page one i just wanted to kind of have like sort of stream of consciousness form of writing and just kind of dive into the script and put everything out and then I start trimming. But I feel that that also could be, uh, that could backfire because you get attached to certain things that you write that in the realm of the whole picture doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel it's good to have a little bit of both. So you have to have a little bit of improvisation when it comes to your own writing and to your own characters, whether it be scenarios or dialogue, but also you have to have in the back, like this spine or this guideline that you refer back to if need to be to just make sure that you're still hitting the notes you're still hitting the points you're still hitting the beats because that could get lost in conversation scenes or get lost in transitions or whatnot mm -hmm. so i think it's good to have a balance of both and not just be because i know writers who are so to the t and by the book and, and and their scripts are not great it just for me as a director also 
I like to let loose a little bit and give my characters some freedom to roam in my head and possible different outcomes to certain scenarios. Because if I put them in a situation, they could react in a multitude of different ways. And I try each scenario and see where that would lead me and if which option is the best option to move on to the next beat or the next arc of the story. Mm-hmm. So your way is more poetic uh, as opposed to yeah. formulaic, which... It- yeah. yeah, 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 and there's no right or wrong with with any no. of that. No, yeah. no, 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 not at all, not at all. I mean, some people like to use cue cards and index cards. I've never been a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm not the type of filmmaker who likes to write scripts where I'm moving and jotting scenes around in the script because I feel that is something more for the editing process. For me, it's more like longs and like long pages of like eleven, fifteen, twenty pages of outline and different documents for character bios, different documents for um, certain uh, amplifications or scenes that um, could, you know, add a little bit more other flavor to the A story or the B story just to spice it up a little bit. So, but I feel that in the end, I need to give the script freedom, even though the script is very specific as far as how you write it, whether it be the scene actions, the dialogue, the how much of the scene action description you write in the present tense. I like to be a little bit more open and not just be confined within those boundaries. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool, man. And so as far as like with, with your past work, has that pretty much been, been what you've been doing with, with all of your short films leading up to uh this is your song? I've, yeah. I mean, in, in a large extent, yes, I, this hi- this is usually how I work when it comes to writing. I feel with the shorts, it's a lot easier right. because I am I'm not trying to convey or display or contemplate this person's existence as much as this person's situation in the in the time in the given time or the conflict that they're facing or the goal that they're trying to aspire for or the redemption quality that they are seeking. I feel with shorts, it's I could I could jump on a short, and I've done shorts where I've written from page one without any outline. Uh, but I usually have like a smaller like beat sheet or a smaller character bio that could help me refer back to it. But with shorts, I I write more free form, but with features, I have to be a lot more calculated because it's a larger domino effect, right. and it's the stakes are way higher when you're writing a feature film because each act takes a long time to perfect and each act has to connect with the second and third act. I think a short film is a lot more forgiving to be a bit more experimental and a bit more lucid than with a feature script. Well, right. I think it's just like, you know, if you're, you're working out, right. So if you're working out at the gym, you're focusing on either, you know, one aspect of your body, what have you, but then, you know, trying to get the whole total body in shape. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I just came from the gym earlier this morning and I'm still trying to <laughs> recover. Boot camp class. This guy yeah. kicked my ass. But anyway. Nice, nice. That's good. That's, <laughs> yeah. good. That's good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to oh, do that so bad. Trust me. I just wish I had some time and to just kind yeah. of kick my ass yeah. a little bit and focus on that. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need it. When I need you can it sure. do it. Yeah, I need it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was I was just uh like I was going back over, over over this week and I was, you know, taking a look at your you know, your other works and you've you've been all over the world 
and yeah. I've seen works from, you know, Africa and mostly here in the Bay Area. Yeah. And I've just always been enamored with filmmakers who aren't from the U.S. Yes. but doing films in the U.S. because of their unique uh, world perspective. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, case in point, I would I, I think of. Uh, oh, my God, the Will Smith movie. Ah, uh, uh, ah. Which one? Will Smith movie with the sun. Uh, the Pursuit of Happiness. Pursuit of Happiness. Yes. Yes. Beautiful film. Yeah. Oh, Italian man. filmmaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, yeah. So after seeing you know that movie and realizing oh oh the filmmaker's uh, he's Italian oh okay well yeah. I, I dug his perspective you know on that you know sure. and yeah so I've I've always I've always dug how you know a filmmaker who you know who's from you know who's you know from anywhere doing a film here just just because i think their perspective is unique and it's fresh and oh absolutely yeah and it's kind of like you know looking at the man in the mirror so to speak you know what i mean it's like, oh hey oh, well, this, totally. this is what some of these people you know think yeah you know, well not think but this is what they're trying to convey yes you know from you know their point of view yes about how you're living yeah so how long have you been in the states and where are you from um I'm originally from Egypt, born and raised. I've been in the States for about uh, close to 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really liked what you said about, you know, I mean, the pursuit of happiness, for example, because I feel like even if you're not somebody who's native to America, I mean, I, I, films are un, a universal language. I mean, yeah. take a look at Parasite. Parasite swept every single award season, um, whether it be Khan and got the Palme d'Or, or the Oscars or the Golden Globes. And the reason being is, uh, the filmmaker was able to create a very sort of universal story that relates to class and people and greed and envy and thematic themes that we all relate to on a global level. Mm-hmm. But the beauty also, I think, from somebody who, let's say, makes films in America but is not an American, is their cultural essence and their cultural eye and their cultural taste always spills into the material, which makes it a lot more unique that way. Uh, right. Whether it be the choice of music or the the type of scenes or how the actors blocking is in in the scene, you could always see that different flavor essence in the work. Um, because people like me, I grew up with Italian films, French films, Egyptian films, mm-hmm. not just American films. And for the mass American audience um, or the mass American viewers, they tend to primarily see English speaking films because a lot of people don't like the appeal of reading subtitles. But I think that helped me read and understand so many different styles and techniques and influences from other countries to create my own voice and see what is the type of filmmaker that I want to be, essentially. Right, right. Yeah. And also, I think that because because of that film winning winning Best Picture, I think we should be able to see more foreign films yes. of you know, coming to the spotlight and therefore, you know, making the American audience, you know, stretch a little bit more. I think that, uh, I think we definitely need to get back to like the films of, you know, the, the seventies, you know, oh, the yeah. 60s, you oh, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I agree. So, that mentality of cinema is, is, it's the goal. It's the big void that is missing in today's cinema. Yeah. Because even every young filmmaker is trying to create a brand, a sense of business entity behind it. And there's, more restrictions when it comes to the type of project or product that they output. And 
for me, like my recent project that I'm writing is really heavily influenced by Federico Fellini or Jean-Luc Godard and that sense of stories that deal with characters and existentialism and very mm. surreal themes too. And I feel like I want, the, that's why like for a next project that I want to write, it feels like I want to do something like that because I miss seeing films like that. Right. And that that you, those type of films don't really exist unless like in they're in Europe or Eastern Asia for the most part. No, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And yeah, and I think I think we need need to get back to it. Okay, I'm gonna share, and okay. uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna confess I have not seen Parasite. No, dude. Listen, I I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm totally losing losing your respect, but uh... <laughs> no, 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 I get it, I get it. But why didn't you? Yeah. Why, how come you haven't seen it? Oh no, honestly, it's just been work and being a dad, right? And so that makes, sense. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get to it. Like yeah. I try, I I gave an earnest try to see Knives Out. I really wanted to see Ron Johnson. Okay, how was that? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Like I'm oh, gonna, yeah. I'm pr- probably right after this, I'm gonna go to Best Buy and just buy the films is parasite out on video yet uh i am not sure i think it's like if you buy it on apple or something like that it might be there because i know once upon a time in hollywood is already available so i'm yeah. assuming since they came out in similar time that it might be yeah yeah i'm just gonna i'm just gonna just you know save save up some pennies and just go to best buy and just you know go to the rack and just sweep mm-hmm. <laughs> just there you go the films i missed right there you go right yeah yeah, yeah. Be- Partly because, not to say that I, well, I did spend my time, you know, because we went to go see, you know, The Rise of Skywalker and pretty much any other Marvel film, you know, with my 10-year-old. That's yeah. that's a given, you know, so. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I did see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as what well. What do you think and, about it? You know, I, I, the one thing I really dig about Quentin Tarantino is the simple fact that he he is taking this leap of faith into fictionalizing real events. You yes. Know, from, yes. Yeah. Glorious bastards and all. Yeah, that. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, because of his past work that it's just going to be so way out in left field that mm-hmm. you just, you know what his work is going to be. So when you see once upon a time in Hollywood, which is his love letter to Hollywood mm-hmm. at such a time when, you know, like between uh, the actor of the fifties going into the sixties. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, you know, the whole Sharon Tate, you know, thing, which is kind of like, damn, you know, I really wish that would have happened because I said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I found the same thing. I felt cheated in the end on it. I mean, I loved the film. I seen it also a couple of times. It was really entertaining and yeah. had great moments, but I felt the ending because I could see that Tarantino, probably wrote a shit ton of other scenes that never made it in and right. even the way charles manson was portrayed in the film i was like oh that that that's pretty much it that's it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean like what i guess if anything it's kind of like well what's what's the story is it more about this actor's you know struggle to you know to evolving into the next decade yeah. or is it and the whole, you know, Sharon Tate and Charles Manson, like all that is kind of like a subplot. You sure. Know? Yeah. It's like the B story almost, even though yeah. she, there's no really connection between both stories besides the fact that they're neighbors. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I felt a little cheated when it came to that aspect, although there's so many other great films, uh, elements about the film. And it is in the end, a buddy picture. 
that mm-hmm. really pays homage to stunt folks too, just kind of like what he did with Death Proof. Um, but yeah. yeah, I feel like I wanted a little bit more. I could have seen it if it was three hours long too, but yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Because like Hateful Eight, you mm-hmm. know, I, I make it a point, especially with uh, his work and Christopher Nolan, like yes. because they're going to stick with film. Yeah. I want to make sure that if they're, if they're shooting on film, I'm going to see it on film. And so yeah. I, I make a trip out of it. So when Hateful Eight came out in 70 millimeter, I went to the Grand Lake, you know. Oh, nice. Like, Great theater. Right? Yeah. 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 Dunkirk uh, back at the Grand Lake, you know, yeah. saw that, you know, so. Beautiful film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Beautiful definitely. film. Yeah. 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 So I will get to Knives Out and I will get to Parasite. Parasite. Yeah. Uh, it'll probably, yeah, it'll, yeah. Uh, I've seen Joker, you know, like, I, I, you know, I was hesitant on, uh-huh. I was hesitant in the very beginnings, uh-huh. but then I started, you know, but then, you know, Todd Phillips was, you know, putting his stuff out on Instagram and I was like, oh, this, this looks like it's gonna be good. <laughs> yeah, that was the only reason why I was hesitant about it was primarily Todd Phillips. Cause like when I think Joaquin Phoenix, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a, great casting choice uh, but yeah. i mean todd phillips work was primarily comedies and I was well it wasn't just no, no i'm sorry I didn't mean to cut oh no i'm sorry go ahead no I was, I was just saying that it wasn't necessarily like todd phillips the director and like i i saw him you know put photos up on instagram and i was yeah. like oh this is this is going to be gritty like this isn't a dc film it's no it's a movie about a guy who goes crazy that happens to be the property of DC comics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it, and it was very masterfully done. I was so surprised by it when I saw it. Honestly, I was I was it exceeded my expectations. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was so sure. so dark. Like literally, like the opening opening scene. I was like, shit, man. There wow. is nowhere else to go but down from here. I was, oh, I was yeah, like, we're totally. starting we're starting at this level yeah. <laughs> of pathetic. <laughs> 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 like there's a whole other levels that are that are gonna happen yeah, <laughs> and yeah this is, totally this is the beginning of the movie <laughs> i know it's so dark from frame one <laughs> and it ends in a bright room by the end of it so it was pretty funny to be honest uh, like sort of twist or change in events yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so what's your take on uh, you know because looking at most of your other short films they've you know you shot on film yes and then with this is your song which we'll get more into later you shot on digital and it makes sense i know why because yes. you literally yeah. had a 97 minute take yeah. you know? <laughs> exactly. like there is no amount of film that can be strung together <laughs> no no magazine big <laughs> no magazine big enough to do that yeah right yeah absolutely so yeah so and even even when you made those made those films on film, mm-hmm. uh, why did you choose? To, like, did you have access, or were you just like, no, I'm working in this medium for right now? Like, was it because there were shorts and they were short enough to do that, or what? I think it was a mix of different things. I mean, I learned. I went to film school uh, back in two thousand and one, two thousand and two in New York. It was okay. community college and. There's a film program that I went to in New York. We shot, we tentatively shot on digital a lot. Uh, we tended to because that's what we had access to. But I felt that the type of stories that I was telling spoke better picture wise with film because I tend to use like a lot of practical lighting. I don't like to do a lot of takes. 
Uh, I love the medium and I love celluloid and I love how forgiving and interactive it can be with mm-hmm. shots that are challenging like night shots or whatever versus digital because I've shot digital a lot and I've shot film a lot. And after shooting film, like after shooting 16 millimeter for a couple of projects, I was very adamant that every short and pretty much all the shorts that I shot short narratives were on film uh, for the most part, like 90% of them were on film. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it was such an interesting difference when it comes to working on a set when shooting on film versus digital, because with film, everything is so calculated. Everything is so meticulous. You have a certain amount of feet of film that you have to shoot an entire film. So you calculate your ratios you calculate what stocks you're going to have and how much of that daylight stock you're going to have because of how right. many shots you have outside during the day versus the interior, which is more tungsten. And it created a very interesting um, uh, flow when it came to setting up shots or rehearsing or shooting or blocking. It was very specific and meticulous to the T. And also, with film, there was I felt a lot more flexibility in experimenting because mm-hmm. if you shoot different stocks or you push the film a stop or pull it a stop or uh, shoot high speed and see how the grain interact with the rest of the footage, it's so organic and texture driven and the highlights and the mids and the shadows are fairly even so you could pull and push a lot of the information in the image versus shooting on digital. With digital, like you would, it was hard at first with the evolution of digital technology to point a camera towards a light or a sun or backlit a character and not have like this bleeding highlight that you can't text, like see the texture behind. And the actor would always be silhouetted. So the contrast ratio was a lot higher. The digital noise and pixelation was still very evident if, because it requires a lot more lighting work to light a good shot on digital while with film like you could be outside and if you know how to use the sun properly the shot could look amazing and it could look like it's lit if not better than the digital shot would if you do it side by side Uh, but digital requires a lot more uh attention film is more like i'm this is what i am this is what i have and you have to work with this and you have to make it work and Hmm you have to rehearse it enough before you shoot it. So there wouldn't be a lot of rehearsals where we would shoot them. We would just rehearse them and then shoot. But with digital, we always shot the rehearsals. Uh, So it makes it definitely harder to annotate what takes work best, especially when you could roll it take a lot longer than on film. Uh, So it made the workflow different, especially in post. But I still found that film was a lot more graceful to shoot on and I hope that my next project, hopefully I can shoot on film. That's what I'm going for. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned, uh, mentioned shooting directly at the sun or what have you, because I was thinking of your short once upon a time where you had, was that stock footage of the moon or did you really shoot the moon? We really shot the moon. Yeah. That's dope. Okay. Yeah. On the long lens. Yeah. Yeah, so like the the cutaway between like the moon and the light bulb flashing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's simple, but it's dope in general. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, you know you know what I mean? Like I'm giving yeah. you props. Thank you. You know, what I mean? you. yeah, Thank yeah. 
you know, simply because I was like, oh, I shot that on 16 and then it was very soft. And, you know, like I get it. It's very like it's organic. Right. You know, now yeah. after seeing films and and doing this a lot, I know why when people talk about film, how organic it is. Yes. And even though it is a little forgiving, it is what it is. Like, just like what you said, this is the type of film stock I am. You're not going to be able to do this, that, or the other with it. So yeah. these are your parameters. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You have to respect it. You have to respect film when you're shooting on film. Yeah. You have to know what you're up against. With digital, like, you always hear the common sentence of fix it in post. Oh, God, yeah. They make cameras that are have that are 6K or 8K just because most of the time the filmmakers or the people shooting don't know exactly what they want specifically. They just want to get as much as they can and then later decide, oh, this is how much we're going to crop into the image. This is how much we're going to you know, uh, make the camera feel wobbly. And I found that workflow with time was not really artful or conducive, nor, nor that it is... You know, can, like, nor that it's too many choices. Either. Yeah, it's just like you have too many choices, and you can't be, you can't be, uh, you just, you just can't show up to set and let just keep saying, let's just try that. When it comes to camera, obviously with actors it's different, but when it comes to camera, you can't just be, let's try that and let's worry about that later. I mean, it, it just, it doesn't make, it makes it like, it's a trial and error thing. It's not like you're going on set knowing exactly what you want and what you're going to get. I think that's a, it's very important for a director to know what they want and to know what they're getting and to do camera tests and lens tests and try different cameras. Because, I mean, with This Is Your Song, we had chances to shoot on a red 8K camera. And mm. especially with a one it actually makes sense technically to shoot on a camera as such because you could punch in if a boom peeks through the frame or... You know, you have a lot more resolution to work with, but the Alexa was the best camera to shoot this film on, and it had a much better image sensor, even though it was a 3.2K resolution. Um, It was a lot better, and it was the closest visual image that I found on a digital camera that is in any way, shape, or form close to the film look, because Ari is a company that's been making film cameras forever. So exactly. they yeah. nailed it versus like a red or a, a Sony Venice or a whatever else that are far more superior cameras when it comes to big resolution 8K shooting. But again, most of what we stream is 2K or 4K at most. So it didn't really make sense to go with the bigger resolution just for the sake of that technically, but it needed to feel right. And Ari is one of the few cameras out there that I felt after shooting on the red and the Sony and the digital SLRs and the movie magic, black magic, whatever cameras mm-hmm. out there. There's so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Ari, especially Alexa, was such a, a graceful camera. It was the right size. The image quality was astounding, especially mm-hmm. when it came to the blacks because digital again, suffers from a lot of problems with highlights and blacks and shadows. They're yeah. very gray, the shadows. Yeah. And the highlights are just blown out. There's no detail. But with film, it was never like that. With film, you could you could get a stock that's really contrasty, um, that's, that's, that really doesn't need a lot of lighting, and you can make the blacks look so rich and so vivid, and the highlights look so nice and soft, but also bright, and maintain a, a beautiful look. With digital... You have to do a lot of work in post to 
pull that back and fix it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of like CDs versus vinyl. Like, you know, yeah. CD, you know, took control. And what we're seeing now is, you know, digital streaming of music. But, you know, who who's making the comeback? Vinyl. You yeah. know, it's, yeah, it's at Best Buy now. It's at all your other, you know, spots. And so. And it costs more because it's better quality. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, you know, it, the medium will never die. Although film did like, you know, at first when they were like, yeah, we're not going to make any more stock anymore. And I was just that like, was that's crazy. Devastating. Like, yeah. 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 That was nuts. So it was yeah. it was good to see how, you know, some filmmakers stepped up to the plate and was like, no, nah, this isn't dead. We're going to keep no. shooting on film. And mm-hmm. that's just, you know, the way it is. And I'm glad that's happened because, you know, if anything, digital democratized storytelling you know, yeah. so that so that anybody who wanted to tell a story could. And that's yeah. and that's the good thing about shooting on digital. You know, yeah. now that, <clears throat> you know, now that uh, we have digital, it's it's I think it's a whole paradigm shift because now it's OK. Well, you know, what is the film look? You know, the only reason why we're at 24 frames per second is because that's the lowest frame rate to keep that optical illusion. Now that we're shooting digital, you know, that's why you got like James Cameron and and uh, Peter Jackson, you know, trying out 48 frames per second, you know, because yeah. it changed that that paradigm where we don't need to shoot on 20. We don't need to shoot 24 frames per second anymore, you know, yeah. despite the soap opera effect. Yeah. Or what have you, you know, I think it's something that's a uh, revolutionary. I think it should still be experimented on and we should still have film. <laughs> you know, the, you know yeah. that you're saying that because like, if I look back and think of even the, 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 the image of the independent films that came out in the sixties or seventies, I mean, people could still then afford film and people could still rent cameras and shoot. And mm-hmm. John Cassavetes or whoever may be at the time, whether they're making dramas or, or documentaries or experimental films, it was accessible and it was cheap. It wasn't an expensive endeavor. Uh, and there were cameras that were built to shoot, you know, just for handheld. There's cameras that are built just to shoot for crane. There was cameras that did speed ramps like... Mm-hmm. 60, 48 frames. Ari's did like the SR3s and all these cameras that could change uh, various cameras that they made that they could change speed rate. And I think it's just now it, it shifted more. Instead of like, you know, you have your gaffer, you have your grip, you have your best boy, you have your DP. Now they just want people to be an all-in-one jack-of-all-trades. Like, okay, so you know how to shoot, you know how to direct, you know how to write, you know how to edit. Cool. So we're going to let you do all that. And digital made that easier because with mm-hmm. film, you can't do all these jobs at the same time. I think that's the bigger benefit with digital is the kind of idea of efficient and fast. And you can multitask different things at once because a lot of cameras that are filmed, they were not seeing sound. And a lot of them, you couldn't record sound to the camera. You had to have a separate mixer on set to record to. And with digital, you could record directly to the camera. You could take stills mm-hmm. and shoot. So I think that becomes a very good benefit, especially if you're like a documentarian who runs and guns and has to 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 to, to be more fast and malleable and discreet or whatever it may be. I think I feel digital works much better in a lot of contexts. But I think everybody who is a narrative filmmaker should at least try film, and then decide if that's the way they want to go because i feel like if i were to shot this is your song on film it would have felt like a totally different film altogether Mm -hmm. it wouldn't 
be the same project that it is now or what it feels like when you see these people moving through these worlds or these scenes unfolding or how the lighting looks. It would have felt differently altogether. It would have been a very different film. And that's just given the different camera. If I would have used a different lens also, it would have made it a very, very different film. Right. Um, and that's right. it's it's there's so much you could play with. And I think that's the beauty of whether film or digital. You just have to know what is the right toy for the type of story you're telling. Because if you think of a film like Dunkirk, it makes total sense that it was shot on IMAX uh, 70 millimeter film. Like I didn't necessarily feel the hateful eight was a film that needed that, even though it was beautifully shot. And Robert Richardson mm -hmm. is an amazing cinematographer, but you know, you have quite, you know, the guy who shot uh, Nolan's films, he shot an Instagram commercial like ad on an IMAX camera. I mean, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. He had a pro he had a commercial that he did. He shot uh, a, like a little thing for Instagram and it was shot on an IMAX camera. I mean, oh, you're down, okay. down resing significantly uh, from a 70 millimeter negative to a 1080p or whatever the output is for an Instagram one by one aspect ratio. Like yeah. there's so much that you're retracting from. And you know, that was his decision. I mean, obviously it feels like, um, I mean, when I heard about it, it felt very, if it, when I heard about it, it felt very excessive, but, um, but I kind of also thought like, wow, well, I mean, if he can do it and he can pull it off, well, why the hell not? I mean, I wouldn't personally shoot an Instagram thing on an IMAX camera, but I could shoot a war film on an IMAX camera like um, Nolan did, which I thought was amazing and appropriately done yeah. so, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, after... Is that you? Uh, yeah, I think my thing keeps popping. I'm turning it off, but it keeps popping open. Let me try to... No I problem. put it twice, but every time I get a... I'm going to put my phone on airplane mode. Anyways, okay. I'm here. <laughs> Sorry no about worries, that. No worries. Technology. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. No, you know, I was just, uh, you know, after after watching everything, like like really watching watching your work, I, I was, you know, just like, oh, man, I was like, I'm going back to film school because Once Upon a Time kind of reminded me like that German expressionist yes. fresh new wave slash film noir you know thing yeah and um yeah yeah, it, yeah. and so how, how'd you come how'd you come about doing that um that the the film itself like the story uh you mean or uh yeah yeah mm -hmm. uh, well um i was i think at the time i was in film school and i had a class that was called city one and it's a cinematography class that primarily focused on 16 millimeter film. Um, mm -hmm. And I've shot 35 before that I shot a, a Nike commercial on 35 and I like fell in love with 16 millimeter film. It felt so timeless. It felt very grainy and texturized mm -hmm. and it felt so like, t like I, I, I wanted to make a film that didn't feel it was made in 2000 and whatever. I wanted to make a film that felt if you came from another planet and you saw this film, you wouldn't know um, when or how it was done or, or, or what time period in this existence of these things called humans 
Um, mm-hmm. It just, to me, felt like I wanted to tell something that was a fantasy, and I wanted it to look like a fantasy. And 16-millimeter film made the most sense mm-hmm. um, to shoot it. And I wanted, I liked the idea of the story of, you know, Little Red Riding Hood uh, when I was a kid. And I liked, I wanted to adapt something similar to it in a very sort of darker, more uh, surreal way. And that's how the idea came to me. And it was said okay. in San Francisco about this, you know, this beggar who is not really a human. He's a mutant animal. And this woman petties him. And then, you know, he shows up in her realm when she thinks about him. And yeah, essentially this transformation from this feeling of monster into human. Uh, but in a very sort of, again, like old school silent film or, yeah, noir, definitely German expressionism aesthetic with Dutch mm-hmm. shots and very high contrast and a lot of black backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then like moving on to uh, Death Will Tremble. Yeah. Uh, I, I was like Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, totally. Speaking of, by the way, did you see his uh, short film on Netflix? Yes, I did. I, did. Oh, oh, man. I love all of his work. I watch all of his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so did I. It was my son's first uh, experience with David Lynch. Oh, we were, wow. Oh, wow. You know, and he's 10. And I'm kind of like, we were, we were just thumbing through uh, the, you know, thumbing through Netflix. And I was like, David Lynch has got a short film. And then, you know, my son, you know, my son was like, can I play this? And I, you know, I was like, yeah, because I, I was just like, I wonder sure. what he's going to think about this. I know, <laughs> this is, yeah. Yeah. Th- this is me like, dear God, I hope this isn't the moment that I break my son. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a running gag of mine because sure. I'm the one that's usually kind of like, OK, I'm tired of watching kids shows. All right. This sure. this might be OK. We'll just play it. And, you know, I'll, you know, if anything happens, we'll I'll talk to him about it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, nothing yeah, too yeah, crazy, yeah. but, you know, just kind of like. Well, let's see what happens. Sure. So, <laughs> it's, it's definitely an experiment with David Lynch. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, he played, and he's just like, "Why is the monkey talking?" And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Don't, don't, don't worry about it." <laughs> yeah. It's a monkey, and it's talking. It's fine. It's the monkey is talking, and evidently, he killed someone. So it's fine, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we got through the end, and he was just like, "Huh?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's." That's, that's about the reaction I expected. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I mean, even though, funny enough, David Lynch did films that were not that bizarre or out of the box. I mean, I mean he did The Straight Story, which right. was a beautiful Disney film. And he did uh, The Elephant Man with Mel Brooks. Yeah. Mel Brooks was the producer. And yeah. those were both beautiful, like straight to the point beginning middle and end type stories that were not as bizarre as most of his work obviously because he he's a painter as well so his films yeah. are very fine art in a lot of we, ways we can't forget dune no dune yeah. yeah i mean i'm excited about the new dune more though but yeah oh yeah 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 for sure for sure, for sure. yeah definitely so you know watching you know watching you know that web series it was um i mean it was really cool to see it was like it was really cool to see you know this work you know, like these types of films that are out mm-hmm. are are still there for people to see, which was the reason why I was like, oh, OK, you know what? I think we all just need to hit the pause button for a second yeah. and go back 
to like our tour directors of the 80s and 70s you know maybe the and and actually the resurgence of independent films in the 90s as well just to kind of remind ourselves you know yeah. why we make movies i mean i'll be the first to tell you i'll see endgame any day of the week sure right but yeah. you know i need to go see taxi driver i need yeah. to see you know i need to see these other films that you yeah. know spark that light and we need that. We need that variety and we need people to embrace all and also support all because no matter what kind of film it is, it's still a hard film. It's still a hard process to make an actual film. It's it's a very consuming, lifelong, sometimes projects take two to three years, some take ten. And I think it, currently in our culture, there's a big misconception to value of work based on the dollar value right. because there's been a lot of films that were that didn't do well when they come out but later became phenomena i mean a simple example is 2001 a space odyssey yeah, and, that's true. which is one of the greatest films of all time and you know it i think we were in the 70s and 80s we were as a society we were a lot more open to music films things that are coming in from other countries, uh, the French New Wave. Uh, and you can see the influence of the French New Wave in American filmmakers. And yeah. today, it's all about the value. If a film doesn't have uh, big actors or it doesn't have, as much as it is more democratic, as you say, uh, it, it kind of created this nudge of, well, if it's a smaller film with no-name actors, I'm not going to waste my time watching it. Or if it's a film that's two and a half hours, I'm not going to waste my time watching it. Or if it's in black and white, I'm not going to waste my time watching it. Or if it has right. subtitles, I'm not going to waste my time watching it. So there's this common denominator. That's why, you know, I mean, films that have big actors or big action sequences or whatever, or they're based on a comic book, tend to be a lot more successful and obviously a lot of marketing money behind it. But there is, it's becoming harder and harder to have room for the David and the Goliath race to, uh, for people to be exposed to that work and right. want to see that work and be excited to go see a movie like Taxi Driver when it came out because that's not a thing anymore. It's not it's not a ritualistic thing. People prefer to sit home and, and go through Netflix or Hulu or whatever and, and, and pick something and watch it and pause it and get up and come back and watch it. It doesn't create the same experience because – you know, with This Is Your Song, it deals with the idea that, oh, theater is dead. But, you know, people still go out to see plays. Why why are people not open to seeing other films, too? Because there's so many variables and variations out there. And it really That's doesn't true. give you a different perspective in your life. That's true. But, you know, to, to the benefit of these streaming platforms, they are yeah. taking, they, they are swinging for the fences as far as, like, putting out work that that probably wouldn't normally, you know, go to the main theaters, you know, True. like uh, what, what marriage story is yeah. one. And then like a few other, uh, I think like Allison Brie and Sam Jackson, I think there's some movie called like U unicorn or something like that. Some yeah. crazy way out of left field, you know, flick that yeah. Larson directed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, this is cool. You know, yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, Captain Marvel and Nick Fury made an independent film. I was like, I'm going to watch this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, yes. that's definitely a good thing for sure, yes.
I just yeah. wish people but, were more open to other things not other than the mainstream. More yes. so. Yes, definitely. Well, it actually, I think it'll actually, uh, it's going to come back again. It kind of has to because, <clears throat> because all of these tentpole films are made, you know, like one per quarter. That's supposed to keep the studio afloat, you know, f- uh, quote unquote afloat for mm-hmm. until like the next quarter, what have you. And so they're putting all their eggs in one basket and all yeah. it really needs to take is one more battlefield earth to uh, <laughs> be, be greenlit. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll get back to like smaller movies because I, you know, for me personally, I do need those smaller films to keep me abreast as yeah. to, you know, to keep me uh, motivated. You know what yeah. I mean? Because, yeah, you know, just because I like my chili cheese fries, but I need to have my Brussels sprouts as well. I'm probably yes. one of the few people that like Brussels sprouts. So, I you love know. Brussels sprouts. <laughs> right. yeah, you gassy, but they're delicious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, man, uh, how how in the hell did you figure out that you wanted to do? Because at first, this this whole film was gonna like this is your song, mm-hmm. this is your first feature film. Yes. This 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 film was supposed to have been a whole one take that was like what 120 minutes long or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, 130 minutes. How did you think that? Like, how did you come across this idea of wanting to do this? Um. Well. Th- the idea started back in the November 2017. I um, I just got out of uh, – I just went through my divorce, and I was married for about four years. And, uh, you know, after, you know, you part your life away from someone that you love and you've been committed to essentially to an idea of a forever, um, you start questioning what variables led to that or what is it about you and the other person uh, that got you to that point. Because, you know, in the end, like, not because you don't continue in a marriage or a relationship with someone doesn't mean that you necessarily don't love them. Um, But that's the hard part because you come to terms or I at least came to terms with the idea that love in itself was not enough. And... um, I was, you know, I I mean, I watch a lot of Bergman films and, you know, I like filmmakers that are are theater filmmakers and and who who transition to film. And I felt like, well, I want to get a sense of reality or a sense of understanding of what went down and, and how I could relate to two people who are in a relationship and struggle to make it work for various reasons. And the idea came to me to make a feature but in order to accomplish a psychological, you know, a, a psychological strength to it and a sense of um, um, understanding the, the, the challenges of it, it, f- it felt like it had to be one take. So I wrote it from the perspective of a play. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film in itself starts on a stage on a play. So it's like a play within a play in a way. And you see the the, the, the differences in the acting and in the performances between the characters while they're in the theater and, and, and with their, you know, friends and coworkers and whatnot. And you see them when they're alone and how different of a shift that brings into both of them psychologically. And I decided, you know, at that point I was kind of, and I still am in a rut in a way. Um, like I, I, I didn't have any money at the time and, 
I had to leave my place and I decided to just write the film because I was in a very depressed uh, psychological state at the time and it felt like it made sense to write. And I uh, got in touch with my friend Lourdes in the Bay and she was visiting me in LA and I told her like, hey, I want to write this film. She knew my my ex-wife and she knew a little she knows a little bit about my history and right. we decided to incorporate a male female voice to these characters and even switch who each of us write as far as dialogue for the other character uh but i i was keen to telling a story about two people in the current american climate who struggle to 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 make their dreams their relationships and the idea of home uh to sustain and be a real thing in their lives and i felt that the one take element was very important especially in the second and third half of the film because you see everything unfolding and peeling and these layers are coming out and you can't blink away and look away. There's nothing that takes you away from the actors. You're always with the actors. Uh, and I wanted to do something that was very performance heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to work with actors and be very intimate with actors and create something very uh, humanistic and relatable and global. And in the same time, same time, like love or loss of love is something that we all can relate to. Uh, on different degrees at different points in our life. So it felt like it made sense because it was so personal to to jump into making this as a first feature film because that's where the most honest of stories, I feel, come out. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And yeah, definitely, you know, the the part of like being in the theater mm-hmm. um it reminded me like it definitely like the reason why I was interested in wanting to audition for the project was the simple fact that, Oh wow, he's going to do this one take. Oh, sweet. It's like being back on stage. So I was like, I need to do this cause I need to get, this is the closest that I'll get to being on stage for right now. I'll get, (laughs) like, I will get back to working on stage. Like that's definitely going to happen. Um, I, I was explaining a while ago to someone that like, I'll definitely get back to doing more stage work. I just feel yeah. like right now, like the, the time that you need to spend for both mediums is almost, is just about the same, but sure. it's a, it's a little bit different. Like yes. it's different. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'll definitely get get back to it. Uh, but yeah, that's what definitely attracted me to the project, and thank you for casting me. Of course, uh, you were amazing. <laughs> I mean, it was so good. You were so right for this. It was crazy. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. and and just see, and just seeing how everybody else, you know, was coming into play and doing, like just that first part, you know, in the theater was was insane. Like from oh, yeah. extras to you know to the lights and making sure and you're going like well you know starting from the play going backstage going to you know the bar and all that stuff like this is this is nuts you know like yeah but that's nothing compared to the one break and as i understand it like once everything is official and finalized this will be the longest take in what cinematic history i in, guess in you in us i in mean US. there's victoria victoria's in europe they did a two uh two hours and 18 minute one 
which is longer Ooh. as far as globally, but in the U.S., this will be officially the longest single take in a U.S. film. And how how does one get vetted in into uh into that? Like like who who do you have to take it to in order to say yeah this is official like or is it just a simple screening will pretty much do it and then they just go through make sure there were no cuts or anything like that right <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's that's what i'm doing. i don't know i mean right, oh, open up open up uh avid <laughs> open up avid let me see let me see the yeah. real quick <laughs> no i mean yeah. it's it's um I mean, yeah, I, mean, I guess you could look at the editing session. I mean, we picture locked this film within the first month because we had some editing in the end of the film and we were looking at takes and writing notes about each takes. Um, so the editing was the easiest part of making this film. It was very unique in that sense too because the montage in the end of the film is very cutty and very different and shot on a different lens set and it has a whole different film feel. Versus mm-hmm. the the oneer. I mean, we we intentionally wanted to do first, second, and third act in one single take, but we had to due to weather, rain, uh, logisticals, uh, possibly getting held up at gunpoint, a bunch of other variables oh, in the Bay God, Area. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had to split the first act and the second and third act to be its own separate thing. So our first act is about twenty something minute shot. And our second and third act are 97 minutes. Um, and I feel like it made the film better to, even though it was such a, a very hard decision to come to, um, it essentially made the film better to have that split because it still doesn't take away from the 97 minute, nor does it take away from the wonder feel in general throughout the whole film because it's all happening in real time. Um, right. So it's not like, we're faking a wonder that's happening in five hours later where this is all like unfolding in, in, in literally two hours and it's fast and it's slow and it's ups and downs. So I feel it helped right. that way because our first day when you were there and we had like the other cast and we had the 40 extras and we had, you know, um, walking out in the street and from the stage to the green room, to the hallway, to the bar and, all that in itself was so daunting and overwhelming and challenging. And then when we go outside, some takes it would be raining, some takes it was not. And the camera would get wet and then the audio signal would drop out. So right. that's also another challenge that we face, even though we prepped and rehearsed for it. But on the day of, there's always new stuff that you don't expect to happen. And uh, it worked out gracefully to split it and put all our focus on the speakeasy theater street scene and one day in the apartment, because the apartment alone was a very, very daunting task. And also thinking logistically from a reset standpoint and makeup and hair and walking half a mile back to the original set and all that, it would have shot us in the foot <laughs> in the long run. And right. everybody would have been a lot more burnt out. So, Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For, for our listeners, uh, the Bay Area, there, there have been rampant uh, armed robberies, strong armed. Horrible. Robberies. Yeah, you know, and we like, we came we came across a bogey at three thirty in the morning that day when we were shooting at the apartment outside, oh, and we had wow. to call the cops. And people were scared. It was it was really bad. And I I was I was I had this like adrenaline like I'm not fearful kind of attitude where I was standing in the middle of the street as I kept seeing the mm-hmm. cart circling. Mm-hmm. But it's a real thing, and it's unfortunate yeah. that 
you know, I mean, I was shooting in North Beach. Like, I wasn't shooting in Oakland or other areas where I know, you know, okay, I need security here. I need this there. I need this. I need PAs here. Like, it felt like, you know, we're shooting in a bright street, but you can't escape it no matter where you are in that area. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten to the point where, you know, like no one's posting anything on social media about, oh, hey, I'm shooting this film here. Oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Or they do and they just like don't geotag it. Right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the big thing. Uh, so, you know, well, a I'm glad everybody. Well, we will. I would have heard about it by now. But so, you know, I'm just glad that oh, no, everything worked out fine. Yeah. Cool. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad so- too. Yeah. So what is going on now with the film? So you've already picture locked. You're doing all the sound stuff. Uh, What are some of the other things? Because right now you've got your you've got a fiscal sponsorship thing going where people can donate money and they can write it off. Uh, So what's happening now with the film and uh, what what is it going to take for you to finish this puppy? I mean, that's the million dollar question, Um, but it it is going to get finished. Um, right now, uh, we got, we were fortunate enough to be selected by film independent, which is the largest film or nonprofit organization related to film in the U S they, they're the organization that pretty much is part of the spirit awards. And, um, Mm -hmm. we, I felt, and I thought, you know, given my history and understanding crowdfunding and all that, that having the film be funded through the fiscal sponsorship is a great incentive because it's a tax write-off. You're putting the money directly to the nonprofit, not to us. And then they sent us the the donations. And with those donations, we pay taxes on them. But whoever donates does not have to pay taxes. It's an automatic write-off. And oh. I thought that was a huge incentive for people that, you know, have expenses or that are freelancers and versus like, you know, the crowdfunding platform of um you know, uh, all or nothing, or, you know, it's so saturated enough already and it's losing its, 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 uh, spark versus like five years ago mm-hmm. that it's become very hard. Cause I know a lot of filmmakers are trying to raise their money through crowdfunding and it's been impossible for them to hit their goals. A lot of them, most of them actually. And, and not to say that the fiscal sponsorship is a much better or more guaranteed way, but I felt the tax incentive alone, especially in the U S just, right makes people feel like they're getting something just right off the bat, you know, right. uh, until at least the film is done. But at least it's a good incentive because even if you pay a hundred bucks, you don't have to pay taxes on it. Or uh, if you donate a hundred bucks, I mean, and yeah. um, now I have a sound team, a visual effects team, a color team. And, you know, my editor who is my right hand post supervisor, essentially Mitch Martin, and I am juggling all these departments essentially to get to finish the film. Now, with a oneer, there comes a lot of complications. Well, you have to, you know, do sound effects in Foley and sound design for the entire film, and you have to do them in a separate track from what's already recorded. Because essentially, if you're going to send up, if you're going to end up selling the film, you have to create an MNE track, which mm-hmm. means you can separate the music dialogue and sound effects and fully from each other so in case the film needs to get dubbed or whatever you have every single footstep every single clothes rustling recorded from scratch so that takes gotcha. an immense amount of time and labor uh and trying to do that right now with practically no funding has been quite a challenge um 
uh, visual effects, we had about 23 shots that needed uh, some shadow removal, stabilization, and whatnot. That's mostly our visual effects. And we, we have about eight remaining. So we have, there's been challenges with that, obviously, and how mm -hmm. it's going to tie in with the continuity of the shots because mm -hmm. you don't want to see, like, in the middle of minute 30, a visual effects shot that stands out. It has to feel seamless with the rest of the 97-minute take, which right. has been a new workflow for everyone because you have to catch continuity. You have to catch... Uh, grain, how the grain looks, how it interacts, how the how the blur feels, or how the blur feels out of context, and it affects the entire film. It doesn't just affect that shot or that scene; it affects the entire film. Um, uh, with color, um, my friend Jamie is coloring the film, and he's been doing a remarkable job. Um, it, it takes a long time to figure out transitions because you're in different rooms and different locations with a continuous shot. So matching certain colors and pulling out certain colors or pushing certain colors have de has definitely its challenges and a lot of trial and error. And, um, and music, uh, we recently last month um, brought on Brad Fisher, who's a friend of a friend of mine, who's a really talented musician and has we've composed about 11 tracks for the film original tracks and they're beautiful and they really heighten everything up and they bring the film a lot more life uh, to the drama. But again, like, I mean, for a film with no budget, we've been right now uh, about almost a year in post-production mm -hmm. for where we are. It's not bad, but obviously, yeah, it makes budget, sense. Yeah. But yeah. obviously, with proper funds, we could be done in a month and a half. Right. But right. because we're working around people's schedules, where things go wrong, things crash, things have to get fixed, things have to be tried. We have to export every time we export the film. It takes about a day uh, to export oh, the wow, whole two hours. Um, we have to do different deliveries for sound versus music versus visual effects, uh, different file formats. All that stuff takes up so much time. Yeah. Um, and emails and back and forth. So if we have funding, we could, you know, essentially, and it's not a lot of funding. I mean, I mean, this film really costs practically nothing in the realm of filmmaking. Uh, but you know, sound on its own could cost up to fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, and visual effects. You know, I mean, if you're talking about seven shots some visual effects artists charge like $900 per minute of shot that they do. Some charge more, some charge less. So we're still talking about 20 or so thousand dollars uh, to hit it home. I mean, there's obviously more funds needed for other parts of outputs, DCPs, uh, prints, uh, Dolby mm -hmm. license, etc. But just to finish the, the work itself, um, yeah, I mean, at least $20,000. So twenty thousand dollars at least gets <clears throat> gets the film made, but then yeah, how much? How much do you think it'll cost to you know to output in those variety of formats? Um, like another. Well, each festival, for example, has a different delivery, and some mm -hmm. also play PAL, some play NTSC, some you know one DCPs, some actually ask for prints very rarely, but some do like prints. Um, and that could mount up to thousands and thousands of dollars. And plus you have, you know, legal fees, LLC fees, taxes, um, 
payouts, um, loans, debts. Um, hopefully, if the film, I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, ninety-five percent of independent films don't sell or don't make their money. But hopefully, the film does sell, and the and we are part of the five percentile, five percent percentile. Um, mm-hmm. But. It, Every day or every week, you learn about new things. I mean, just to license a song alone could cost you between ten thousand dollars and up per yeah. section of song. So it all adds up. But just to get you know the basics done, I mean that it costs that much. Uh, but other stuff, you know, I mean, at least I want to get the basics done so I could worry about the other stuff and not you know juggle twenty million things at the same time. But we are. We, we're all positive and we're all putting in the work. And I mean, my editor, Mitch, has been on this project since January because I would send him test shots and whatnot. And we've been working on it ever since. And it's a never ending thing. And um, there are people that came on board. There are people that had to leave the project for unfortunate events, personal mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to find other people. And you know, refresh everybody about what's going on and build a new chain of contact and build new documents. Like it's like running a company, but in a film. Yeah. So um, it does require a lot of money and, and that's, and, and $20,000 is not really including people's time or the time that they put that they didn't get, you know, um, did not get paid for. Right. Um, so properly, you know, any budget of any indie film, I mean, a low budget one is between like a hundred to five hundred thousand dollars because now a low indie in Sundance is about one point five million and up, and, and a lot of, and a lot of capacities. Um, so yeah, it's it, it takes a whole village. That's true. That's true. Well, listen, let, let's try and hit up the Duplass brothers. Let's see. Let's see what Soderbergh is up to. I'd like twenty thousand, twenty thousand. You know, that's got to be like chump change. <laughs> I know for a lot of people, it is. It's and it's a tax write off. You know. Yeah. 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 So if so, how do they make this tax deductible contribution? Where, so, where do they? So they go, essentially, there's a link on the film's website. You could see it. Uh, you can find the link on thisisyoursongfilm.com. Or you could visit the Film Independent website, um, filmindependent.org. And under their fiscal sponsorship link, they have the film there uh, where they could go visit and uh, donate, essentially. Um, and I think, you know it's good for people to visit the film website because we have some information about the film. We have a behind the scenes video a trailer. So people should visit this is your song and they will find all the information there to help donate for the fiscal sponsorship. Uh, hopefully the Duplass brothers do too. Um, but yeah, I mean um, it's, 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 it's reach it's within reach. We're on Facebook, on Instagram. We have the links to the fiscal sponsorship on there too. Um, and yeah, I mean, we really need to finish it. And, you know, it's been a th- so far a three-year journey um, and the film is not done, but it will get done one way or another. It's just hopefully oh, sure. hopefully, the right pieces come to the puzzle so we could, you know, start thinking about, okay, festivals, distribution, what are we going to do, this right. and this, because that also is a whole other endeavor to get the film out there. Yeah, you want it done right. Exactly. So- yeah. I don't want to just finish it and be like, all right, I made a film. No, I want to get it into some reputable festivals. I want it to have, I want to sell it to a good 
uh, distributor that hopefully gives us like maybe a theatrical run for a week or two in a couple of cities and uh, online streaming, that kind of thing. So I want to make it the best quality possible with a 7.1 surround sound and spend the right amount of money to output a really good film that could compete with a hundred million dollar budget film and right. stands out on its own and not feel that it's done for nothing or not feel that it's cheap because what we have as far as the visual quality of the film and the performances, it really shows beyond what we would have spent to make it. So I want to keep that momentum going all the way to the end and make it the best possible film. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, hey, I know it's going to happen. I know with with the energy that you're putting forth behind it, you know, that, you know, it'll, it'll get done. So if anybody wants to see your work, where can they go to? Uh, they could go to hassansaid.com, H-A-S-S-A-N-S-A-I-D.com. Uh, I'm also on in- Instagram and Facebook, Hassan underscore Saeed. Um, yeah, and please visit thisisyoursongfilm.com. Watch the trailer, share it with your friends, family. It's a relatable story about, you know, people, love, uh uh, passions, careers, uh, goals, aspirations, and it's got something for everybody. So at least check the trailer out. And we, 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 we do need everyone, whether you're, you know, a father, uh, uh, someone in college, uh, a mother, whoever you may be to help other independent filmmakers bring a voice to the culture and bring uh, a new perspective to life that you know we need in every day-to-day life because we need to relate to other people and that helps create empathy within us and within the society that we live in word i, th- I think i'm gonna end it just like that <laughs> Thanks <laughs> for that thank was you beautiful. so much Jeff. it was a pleasure thank you so much for having me cool 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 Another episode of LJ Presents. As always, you can find me on my website at ljeffreymore.com, Twitter at ljeffreymore, and on Instagram at ljeffrey.more. If you like what the show has to offer and you'd like to make a contribution, make sure to check out my Patreon page. Your contribution is always appreciated. Make sure to check back next week for another great guest. See you then.